Hello and welcome to episode 332 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, producer, host, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I hope you're enjoying the music that I'm playing at the top of the show here. It is Speak Easy from the band Retroactive Gamma Rays. It's from their album Activate, which you can find on Amazon, CD Baby, and other online retailers, or if you're in the Lincoln City area, you can catch them live this Saturday night, August 26th. Their only summer show is happening at the Naughty Mermaid, and it's a free show. Stop by and let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio, and maybe tell them a little bit about what you're going to hear this week, and what you're going to hear this week is a conversation with Dominique Lamsey. So Dominique's been on the show in the past briefly when we were at the Joy Cinema last year for the Scarathon, and it was fun to chat with her then. I've seen her at different events around town. We go to the Lovecraft Film Festival, that sort of thing. Well, I wanted to get her on the show proper. So she picked the movie. It is Universal's Phantom of the Opera. Well, which one? The color one. The second one they did. Not the Lon Chaney Sr. one, but the one with Claude rain so we're going to talk about that with her here in a little bit but first we have a bit of feedback i got a message from listener billy through our facebook page he was asking about the first 49 episodes of monster kid radio apparently they weren't showing up in the itunes stream or feed he uses the itunes podcast app to listen to the show i thought i had this all worked out with liberated syndication the people that host our podcast apparently it's not worked out but that doesn't mean you can't hear the first 49 episodes you can go to monsterkidradio.net or our bare bones behind the scenes website at monsterkidradio.libsyn, that's L I B S Y N.com, and look through the archives and find every single episode of Monster Kid Radio there. You can download it as an MP3 and then play it to your heart's content, whether the iTunes feed has it up and running or not. You also might be able to get it through the Monster Kid Radio network feed, but eh, we're working some things out with that. Anyway, Billy, thank you for writing in. I appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy the first 49 episodes. Thank you for listening to the show. Billy got a hold of us through Facebook. We have a Monster Kid Radio Facebook page. If you are a user of Facebook, please consider giving that page a like. As of this recording, we have 1,169 people liking the Monster Kid Radio Facebook page, and that's awesome. If you have any friends that use Facebook and love classic monster movies, please send them our way. Or if you haven't liked us yet, please consider doing so. We're trying to get up to 1,500 likes by Halloween. I know we can do it with your help. Maybe do it after you've listened to this conversation with Dominique about Phantom of the Opera and a handful of other things. We actually recorded this episode a while back before Wonder Woman came out. That tells you how backed up I am on recordings, which is awesome. But it does mean that when we're talking about whether or not we're going to see Wonder Woman or more specifically whether or not we're going to see The Mummy with Tom Cruise, well, it kind of dates the conversation, but there, there's follow-up, and we'll get to that right after this. How much Jack you think's in that strong rock? Mm. There's plenty of Cuban sugar, though. Here's what happened. The general beat his friend Castro to the Cuban treasury. The strong box is now on this boat. So are a deported American gangster and his mall. And lurking in the depths is the creature from the haunted sea. You're a crazy mixed-up kid. I am perfectly adjusted to my life of crime. Don't worry, Mary Bell. I'll save you. Thank <laughs> you. 
right, be calm, everybody. The boat's insured. Interested in starting a podcast? Then be sure to attend PIY 2017. PIY is the Podcast It Yourself Workshop, October 28th in Phoenix, Arizona. Learn about software, hardware, accessories, best practices, and more to make your podcast rock. Need more information? We'll have the authors of Podcasting for Dummies 3rd Edition, T. Morris and Chuck Tomasi, on hand to answer questions and sign books. Spaces are limited, so go to podcastingfordummies.com and sign up for PIY 2017. We look forward to seeing you there. Phantom of the Opera. Behind the cavernous walls of a great theater, behind the gaiety and make-believe, there lurks evil, an unspeakable evil. The Phantom of the Opera. The motion picture screen's unrivaled masterpiece of the macabre. Only once in every generation comes a tale of such classic horror to hold audiences forever captive with its sheer fascination, its overwhelming terror, its frightening power. The Phantom of the Opera. Beneath his mask, the grotesque face of unimaginable horror. But within his heart, the desperate desire for beauty and love. Drama to thrill you and chill you as no other motion picture ever has. In color, The Phantom of the Opera. This is Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I'd like to welcome to Monster Kid Radio another new voice. I think 2017 is going to be the year of new voices on MKR. Although I say new voice and then it occurred to me, I actually had her on the show last year in October when she was at the Scarathon at the Joy Cinema. Dominique Lamsey's welcome Hello. to Monster Kid Radio. Welcome back. Thank you. How's it been going since the last time we chatted with you? What was like five, six, seven months ago? Uh, it's been going great. Thanks. Keeping busy. Yeah. Anything new in the publishing world? Um, I actually have something now in non-binary review, number 12, the Edgar Allan Poe issue, which I'm quite pleased with. Also in pre-order right now from Dim Shores is kind of a small zine thing uh, called Resist and Refuse, which is actually all the proceeds are going to charity. So that's, I'm pleased okay. about that too. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes to this. Now, this episode won't necessarily be going out for a little while, but when it does go out, I'll make sure there's links in the show notes. And if you've got anything that comes out between the time of recording and the time it goes out, let me know and I'll make sure I get everything updated. And we want people to read your stuff because I'm a fan. I think the listeners will dig it too. 
if nothing else, they need to check out your website. We were talking a little bit about it before we started recording. The University of the Bazaar. And one of my absolute favorite things that I've read about the Hammer film, Frankenstein Created Woman, which is a great film, is something that you wrote about it last November, comparing it or, or drawing parallels between it and the classic Cinderella story. It's just fascinating. So listeners, check it out. I was listening to 1951 Down Place, your episode about Frankenstein Created Woman when that occurred to me my mind just hit a flurry and I just started writing notes immediately. So that one was a lot of fun to write. Excellent. And then since then you've also written about Dracula's daughter. I think you and I have different thoughts on that film, but you know, again, people need to check it out. There will be links in the show notes to that as well, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about another movie, but before we do any of that, we've got a game that we play here on monster kid radio, a game called the classic five. Now I don't think we did this when we were at the joy. So this will be your first time playing. I believe. Correct. Okay, the classic five. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, yes or no style question. There are no wrong answers. They're just about classic monster movies, and it's a way for listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So, you ready to play the classic five, Dominique? I am. Let's do it. All right, I'm going to give it one more shuffle. I was shuffling earlier. All right, here we go. Card number one. Wow. I think I know where this is going to go. Card number one. Hammer Films or Amicus Productions? Hammer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Amicus did give Ingrid Pitt more work, but, you know, Hammer is, you know, Peter Cushing. So. See, and that's, listeners, why I'm a fan of Dominique's. I mean, and I'm a friend, but I'm also a fan because she's on Team Peter. Absolutely. Come on now. No Peter Cushing, no life, man. <laughs> you can either take that literally when it comes to the Frankenstein movies, or <laughs> I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> All right. Card number two, which character from a classic monster movie would you like to follow on social media? Okay, actually, probably Mary Henry from Carnival of Souls. Wow. Listening to that ramble when she's in one of her little fits, that would actually be kind of awesome. Hey, you want to die, huh? Rev it up. Action you've never seen. Races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture making. Carnival of Souls. Great film, too. Great yep. film. Okay, <laughs> card number three. Oh, favorite Ed Wood film? Night of the Ghouls. Really? I love that one. Really? Wow. And I actually have, uh, I made a costume of the, the Black Ghost for Halloween two years ago. Nice. See, this is what I love about getting new voices on the show and new people is because we get questions that are completely different than anything we've ever heard here on this show. And I don't think Night of the Goals has ever been mentioned here on the podcast. I mean, it's a good film, but wow. It's amazing. I love it. <laughs> All right. Card number four. Oh, when it comes to horror hosts, do you like them to interact with the film or just shut up and show the movie? Shut up and show the movie. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? I grew up with Elvira. Elvira was like my hero when I was like six and seven. Okay. Like, okay. Cause Sven Gulli. Duh, that kind of bugs me. Really? Not yeah. a fan? I, I like him, like when he's little in his little office doing his thing, but when he makes the little jokes, like with the the screen, like a screen from the movie, that, that bugs me. I don't know oh, why. Okay. It just bugs me. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Did you have, and you said Elvira's who you used to watch growing up. We don't have a, a local horror, a local ish horror host here in the Portland area right now. I think everything that we can see is on YouTube. Yeah. Or something like that. Or if you have a Roku device, obviously there's a handful of things out there. We do need a horror host. We, we need one. Absolutely. 
All right, you know, I'm going to admit to stacking the deck here. Normally, these are all random. Like I said, I shuffle the cards, but because of what we're talking about this week on Monster Kid Radio, I I wanted to pull this one aside for Dominique. Who's your favorite actor to play the Phantom of the Opera? Lon Chaney. Really original, huh? Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of the original. Man, that movie is so good. Do you have it on Blu-ray? No, I don't. Oh, it looks so good. It looks so good. (laughs) (laughs) That's on my list. Oh, it's it's amazing. And we get to see some of it in the film we're talking about this time around because, well, they use the same sets, which is great because it looks wonderful in color. And we're talking about 1943's Phantom of the Opera. And this is where I normally insert the trailer. So I'll put the trailer right here, which is a lot of music. Yep. you've ever wanted in entertainment in one superb show here is matchless story suspenseful terrifying never so thrillingly presented here in breathtaking technicolor is superb spectacle and splendor and romance here is a chorus of a hundred voices a ballet of a hundred dancers a cast of a thousand starring nelson eddy in his most vigorous performance lovely susanna foster and Claude Rains in the most coveted role of the year as the Phantom of the Opera. My music! You've stolen it! You've stolen my music! You know, depending on how Universal happens to be feeling that day when they release a box set of their classic monster movies, you may or may not see The Phantom included amongst things like The Mummy, Frankenstein, Dracula, and so on. I think the first time I saw it was on VHS when it was released as part of their classic monster movie collection when they were doing that. When was the first time you saw this one? It was on VHS. I want to say I was like 15. Um, And I'd just gotten into the musical. I saw the 1925 one first, and then I saw this one. How many versions of Phantom have you seen? Okay, hold on. <laughs> I didn't prep you for this. I don't prep anybody for anything here on the show, really. Okay. But so. Are we counting all the different versions of the original one, of the 1925 that, one? See, that's, that's interesting. I was going to bring that up, actually, because they did kind of recut that, depending on when you saw it or what release you see. It's a little different. Some of the characters are a little different, which is something you can do with silent films. Just change a title card here and there, and it's a completely different story. Yeah, yeah. Because I was lucky enough to get the Millennium Edition of the 1925 one, which has the San Francisco release, the New York release, and, like, one other. And then it has two different versions of the Technicolor Masquerade scene. I love that scene so much. Oh, my God, right? Oh, so good. <laughs> All right, so, so we have the original. We've got this one. I'm, I'm assuming you've seen the Hammer films. Uh, yes, yes. What are your thoughts on the Hammer one? Uh, okay, it, it's it's a little tricky. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, for me, the Hammer one, Herbert Lom really got the short end of the stick on that one. Okay. Because he would have been really, really good if they had done the Phantom Justice. Huh. I feel like that movie was not about the Phantom. 
it was more about Christine and or DeSouza. I can't remember the guy's name in the movie. Right. It was good because it was more detective-y, which I think is more in spirit of the novel. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, Herbert Lom just got the short end of the stick on that one, I think. Okay. Which kind of happened, actually, in the 1943 version. That's true, too. I was going to say, it sounds like you're describing the film we're talking about today. Now, of course, it's been done, uh, you said the musical, it was on TV as a musical with completely different music with Charles Dance as the Phantom. Yeah. The character's been in Scooby-Doo. Uh, there was a Robert Englund version in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. That, that's the first one I ever saw. Oh, really? Wow. I was fascinated when that came out because they designed all the poster art to make it look like a Freddy Krueger flick. Yes. <laughs> yep. Like they're trying real hard. It's like, this is Freddy Krueger. Well, not really. If you watch the movie, it's it's nothing. It's fascinating. Though. It's cool to see Robert Englund do something a little different. Mm-hmm. He's an underrated actor, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it just keeps getting done and done and done. Did you see the musical version? Was it 2004 with Gerard and... Yes, Other people? I <laughs> Saying I'm forgetting right now. Yeah. Yeah. Joel Schumacher is setting out to, like, destroy everything I've ever loved in my life, basically. After Batman movies and then that and just, yeah. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, listeners, Dominique is a huge Batman fan. And, <laughs> oh, I did not mean to open up that door. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, Joel Schumacher. Yeah. See, that said, I love the musical. I've actually seen the musical like six times now. Oh, wow. That movie version, it's like he did not understand anything about the story when he made it. Like, Wow. Okay. And yeah, old Batman wounds. Um, My wife and I did go see it in the theater. Uh, She saw it twice. I I mean, I thought it was good for what it is, but no, I've seen the musical as well. And and I I prefer the stage version, what I saw the one time many, (laughs) many moons ago. I have I haven't seen it six times for sure. What I do like about that version of the Phantom is it gave Gerard Butler another horror feather in his cap because he played Dracula a couple of years before in Dracula 2000. Then he went and played the Phantom, and I was like, man, do some more horror stuff, man. But you know, oh well, never happened. Anyway, let's talk about a better movie. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 43's Phantom of the Opera. I enjoy the movie, but I feel like it's a whole lot of missed opportunities. I would agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, the biggest one, I think, Lon Chaney Jr. should have been in the movie somewhere. Come on. Yeah. I mean, just the legacy. It's his birthright, you know? (laughs) I I don't know if he could have done as good a job as Claude Rains. He probably couldn't, but I mean, he doesn't have the look (laughs) that that Claude Rains has. But come on, it's his legacy. Come on, you know? I almost think he. Like, if he could have sung, or if maybe they had just, like, been willing to dub it, he could have played the tenor guy. Oh, okay. He was, like, super handsome back in the day. He was he was a leading man type. He was, yeah. he was uh, you know, svelte, and, and, and he had the look, you know, the little pencil-thin mustache. I mean, he was the man. Exactly. He was a romantic lead guy. And that's what he wanted to be. Yeah. I think that would have worked really well, because I'm not, I'm just not seeing him behind the makeup. Like the other movies I've seen, like I think it was one of the Mummy ones, one of the Frankenstein ones, where he was in the makeup. He didn't look comfortable. He wasn't feeling it. Well, yeah, and that's true with the Mummy films. I, I know that he's actually gone on record. There have been interviews and things where you've said that that was not a comfortable monster design for him, monster makeup for him. I mean, it's it's binding, it's tight, it's hot. Yeah, he wasn't a big fan of the Mummy stuff, but he did a wonderful job as the Wolfman. So, you know, it's hard to... That's true, yeah. You know, it's hard to say, but... 
I don't know. No, I could see that. And he could kind of sort of sing. I mean, did the theme song for Spider Baby. I don't know if that counts, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> I could see that. Now, that would have been interesting. At least, yeah, put him in the movie, but not necessarily as a phantom. I think Claude Rains did as good a job as possible in the film, especially with the age difference. And I think maybe that would be one of the reasons why you could not do Lon Chaney Jr. in this film is because there is supposed to be that age difference. Yeah. Between the Phantom and, the, and Christine, which I was doing some reading, and, and I don't know how accurate this is. This is the Internet Movie Database. This is Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. I admittedly don't know a lot about the production of the film or what, what went into it because it's not a quote-unquote classic traditional monster. But apparently he was supposed to be Christine's father in the film. There was a couple different versions of the script for this one written. Okay, okay. The the first version, which was actually like in 35 or something like that, in the mid-30s, oh, wow. he was supposed to be a World War One veteran um, oh. who was a musician. And he came out of the war physically fine, but mentally screwed up. So he just determined that he was disfigured and he believed he was disfigured. And that's why he ended up living under the opera. Wow. For Phantom of the Opera people, that may ring true for the, I think it was the 1990-something Dario Argento version. They did something similar to where the Phantom wasn't actually disfigured. The second version, they scrapped that one which I think actually would have been really cool if they pulled it off. And that actually would have been a good one for Claude Rains. I think he would have rocked that. Sure. The second one had Eric as Christine's father, and he abandoned the wife and the daughter to go be a musician. The thing is, they talk about the love triangle that they tried to make, because they actually they changed their minds on that one, on the father idea, because apparently it sounded incestuous. but. When I watch the film, I don't see any love triangle stuff at all between Eric and Christine. For me, it's the father vibe. So all the stuff where they're talking about how, oh, he's in love with her, it seems really forced. I would agree. The the relationship, the the care, you know, I've always cared for you and all that. It's it's not a romantic love that I'm getting there. It's it's more of a I think you said a father thing, a mentorship. You know, there's something else going on there, but it's not a romantic love. And I, I don't get any of that at all as well. Yeah. At least in this. I mean, in other versions of Phantom, they do explore that a little bit more, I suppose, but not in this one. Yeah, definitely not in this one. Are you familiar with the novel then? Uh, yeah, I've read it a couple times. And how close does this one hew to the, the source material? Not really at all. I read Phantom once, many, many moons ago, so I barely remember so there's the couple key elements of like the chandelier falling and the unmasking and that's really it you know i mentioned earlier we said something about a lot of missed opportunities in this film and for me launching jr is like one of the biggest ones just to have him somewhere in there for you what's your biggest missed opportunity from the film claude rains playing crazy yeah we get the end piece where he actually like the chandelier falls and then he grabs christine and he brings her underneath and he's just rambling and it kind of makes sense, but it basically doesn't make sense. And I feel like had they brought that up sooner. Actually, okay, let me rephrase and kind of retract that. The big missed opportunity was tension. This was a musical. It wasn't supposed to be a mystery because the novel was supposed to be a mystery. Mm-hmm. And then the movies made it into horror, both of which involve tension. And this version simply did not have that. When I was watching this again last night, I kept thinking this is the 40s version of like things blowing up in an action movie 
we're going to show you something pretty and shiny so that you forget we don't really have a plot. Oh, okay. I mean, we have a police inspector, and he does, like, nothing in the movie except moon after the singer. (laughs) Yeah. There should have been some detective work. There should have been some tension of some kind. Because I really think they actually did a disservice to the story as a whole by having Eric's backstory in the film. One of the nice things about the story that keeps it flowing in the book and the the other versions is that when we were dropped into the story, the Phantom is already a thing. And we just have to deal with it. And that starts the tension and it keeps it going. So I think that's kind of where the ball got dropped as a whole. And it, that plays into Claude Rains being crazy because we would have gotten to see more of Claude Rains playing crazy in that case. Which he's good at. We saw him in the, well, <laughs> we didn't see him in The Invisible Man, but you know, he's good at <laughs> He's got the voice. He yes, could totally he's very good at it. totally go there. Totally go there. Which is yeah. No, I think you're right there. That's a really good point. And it's something that Hammer also did by giving him an origin. And I think one of the, the creepiest, most mysterious things he can do when it comes to a monster movie is don't explain it. Don't give it a background. He exactly. just is. He's a thing. And there there has been conversation within the Monster Kid Radio community. One of my dearest friends who's been on the show uh, Scott Morris from the Disney Indiana podcast and I, we, we talk about Phantom, about how the Phantom really isn't a monster, at least as he's presented in a lot of these movies. He's just a guy who had some terrible things happen to him. You know, he didn't start out as a vampire. He wasn't a werewolf. He was just a dude. And and I, I get that, but I, I want to have more. I don't, or at least more of the monster part of it or the mystery part of it by giving us less. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, absolutely. Okay. I'm going to bring this back to Peter Cushing because I do. <laughs> Back to Cushing. Back to Peter Cushing. Um, the same as the Hammer Frankenstein films and why I like those as opposed to the Universal one because it's about the crazy dude who goes and does bad things knowing that he's doing bad things. And that is kind of how I feel about Phantom of the Opera because I, for me, if the story is done properly – Eric is doing bad things and he knows he's doing bad things. And yes, he's been dealt a bad hand, but he still goes out and does them because I am a fan of the person who has become a monster as opposed to the monster who is becoming a person. Okay. That's not to say we didn't enjoy the film. I I hope listeners aren't just here to to kind of poop on the film. I I think there's a lot of interesting things here, but I think I wonder if some of the, what we're seeing is missed opportunities might've been because, and and maybe I'm not speaking from a place of real intelligence here because I don't know a lot about the history of the musical, Mm -hmm. but universal, at least in the forties. And I don't think ever really was known for their musicals. Yeah. That was more like the Warner brothers thing. That was more like, you know, MGM, you know, these other studios did the musicals. Universal was the house of horror, at least sort of at that time. And, you know, they tried real hard to make this a musical and I guess it kind of is without really going there all the way. I mean, with most musical numbers, you have a song a bit that kind of progresses a story where there's just a lot of music in the background in this one that become yeah. huge sequences. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if Universal was just a little out of their depth with that or, or, or out of their arena. Well, when I was looking into this particular version, it turns out that they wanted to put in the role of Christine an actress named Deanna Durbin. Okay. Who was their star du jour, who was a musical star. So apparently they were kind of starting to dabble in musicals at this point. And Deanna Durbin is great. She's a great actress. I've seen her in a number of things. I like watching classic cinema, even if there aren't monsters in them. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, Deanna Derman's a great actress. I think she would have been fascinating in this. Yeah. Apparently there was too much blood, so she said no. <laughs> and speaking of too much, apparently the ratings board thought there was too many um, breast shots in this. I read that, which I do not understand because I, everybody I think- is covered up completely. In these ornate, you know, operatic costumes, how do you have? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. So whether it was reshot or they just, I don't, I don't know what happened there. I, I don't know what they saw that made the censors upset. But this is post Hayes Code. This is, you know, people are concerned now about how these films are received. So yeah, um, hmm. too many breast shots. Too many breast shots. Although this will be the segue into me talking about costuming because this is my thing. There we go. You see how I set that up, listeners? I actually did that on purpose because I'm friends with Dominique. I follow her on Facebook. I know that she likes costumes and and crafting and all this stuff. So I want to talk about that. So please. They tried really hard because I think they really showed because this movie was made after we had entered World War II. Mm -hmm. So we're doing um, a lot of rationing. And this movie was actually made with a cat. Universal decided we can't spend more than this on the movie uh, because of post-war shortages and stuff. And unfortunately, as much as they threw around all this money, if you really pay attention to the costumes, the lack of money and the lack of materials starts to show. The costuming in this movie was done by Vera West, who I believe is a big name uh, gown designer. Oh, she is. I would love to do an episode on Vera West, but I can't find much information about her. If you watch classic Universal monster movies or any movie from that era, she's always in the opening credits. Gowns by Vera West, and she's amazing. And I think what I did like about this was all the costumes for me look like pieces of Wedgwood, the porcelain. (laughs) Because she tried to make things ornate by basically making the costumes like she chose one color. And then she had a really spangly, fancy trim on everything. So it did, it looked like a Wedgwood cup where you had the blue and then like a really ornate sculpted white border on top. Okay. Which I thought on the everyday costumes, it was effective. And actually Christine's costumes, she put a lot of effort into Christine's costumes. But see, my big problem in the costume arena was the actual staging of the opera numbers because you couldn't tell who the prima donna was. Cause I'm not an expert in opera or showmanship or anything, but I'm pretty sure the prima donna had a fancier costume. So you could always find her on stage. Right. Whereas in this one, you couldn't hers were as plain as everybody else's. And that was actually a little weird because I'm watching these scenes and I'm like, okay, who's singing? (laughs) I'm trying to figure out who's singing because you should be able to just look at the costume and figure out who's singing. Mm -hmm. Especially, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say it wasn't just you. I had that same problem. I mean, you're watching it and just nobody, either because of the way they shot it or apparently the way they dressed it, you can't tell who this focus is supposed to be in these big, long shots with everybody up on stage. Exactly. Especially because, like, historically speaking, if you're the diva of the Paris opera, you have groupies and you get paid a lot of money and you are the most famous person there, which means they dress you accordingly. I mean, these women had egos. So if they didn't have the proper gown, they weren't going out that night. It was post-war or it was uh, wartime shortages, which is fine. It was just it seemed a little off to me. 
So probably a good thing the original Phantom set was still standing at the time then because they couldn't afford to build a new one. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the costumes, uh, I, I hadn't thought about that. It's just one of those things that, like, I key in on things like, you know, the way the camera's moving, the lighting, and the music, and the soundtrack. But I didn't key into the costumes, but you're absolutely right. It does kind of make everybody kind of blend together. Yeah. And unless you've got a, a, a two or three headshot shot, it's kind of hard to tell who's doing what. Uh, on the other hand, I did appreciate that so many people came out on stage at one point wearing the, the phantom mask. I mean, I thought that was interesting to see all those people in the background. But other than that, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to know more about Vera West. So any listeners, if, if you know anything about Vera West and would love to come on the show and talk about it, I would love to have you on because I think she's one of the unsung heroes of these movies. She's contributed to a lot of them. I just can't find much about her. I think she might have even committed suicide, but I could be wrong. I, I don't know much about her background. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Future episode. Table that, Derek. Okay, yeah. got it. Okay. <laughs> like I said, I key into the music. And I did find it interesting that the music in this doesn't necessarily feel very operatic. And I did a little bit digging on that. And apparently only one song is technically a quote unquote opera. And I know there are certain rules about what it takes to be an opera versus an operetta versus whatever. A lot of the music was pulled from public domain sources because of the war. They couldn't necessarily go to Europe and get the rights from somebody. They were busy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They had other things on their plate as yeah. it were. Also, they probably just didn't want to pay for it. True. Again, if, if we're talking about shortages and, and a really tight budget, I mean, this is post the era of Universal spending a ton of money to build the opera set, to build everything from Hunchback from Notre Dame. This is a much smaller studio at this point in terms of how much money they're willing to spend. So, yeah, they probably couldn't afford a lot of this. I think a lot of the music from this was actually public domain or classical music that was then expanded upon, which, again, would be in the public domain or music meant for another film, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Yeah. Which, again, I, I don't know much about opera versus operettas versus what other musical forms there are. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I know film scores. <laughs> I talk about film scores. And I do appreciate that they did incorporate like that lullaby into the score. I mean, that's part of, of the tapestry of Phantom. Yeah. Is this, you know, not knowing a lot about, I don't know, this particular film in terms of the behind the scenes. I mean, it sounds like you know a lot more than I do. Was this the first time it was put on film with an emphasis on the actual music? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I can't 100% swear to this because like weird Phantom of the Opera stuff pops out of nowhere all the time. But I <laughs> think this was actually the first like full on sound one. Okay. So it was really their first opportunity to have the music be a focal point because there was the 25 version and then they just kind of added dialogue to that in 30 which ended up being a huge debacle because apparently everybody in the 1925 version of phantom of the opera had a really terrible sounding voice hey man they needed different strengths back then (laughs) exactly exactly so the music they added to the 1925 one when they added sound was just kind of blah and last minute whatever so I think this was really the first one that they actually did in in color, in full color and in sound so they could focus on the music. I can see that. Again, it makes sense, too, when you think about the history of cinema and where things are and, and how sound was viewed or, or listened to, I guess, in 
you know, the twenties, thirties, that sort of thing. A lot of it might've felt gimmicky. So yeah, let's just throw something on there. It doesn't really matter if it's super high quality. It's sound. That's what's going to sell. Exactly. I don't think I've seen a version of this film that has actual dialogue inserts, but I know there are some out there. Actually, now that I think about it, maybe I have. It's, it's like a silhouette shot of the phantom talking. Yes. Actually, the version I watched in preparing for this was the high def Blu-ray okay. that Universal put out. Oh. I think last year or two years ago. Um, it was exclusively through Walmart and it had this super cool glow in the dark cover. Um, <laughs> they did uh, the whole series. So they did Dracula and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and the uh-huh. Mummy and the Invisible Man and stuff. And okay, just an aside, the HD is beautiful. Yeah. Oh, they did such a good job. There was one point where Christine had lipstick on her teeth. I could see it. Wow. So thank you, HD. Wow. <laughs> for that. But the documentary that came with it was actually talking about how um, when they wanted to do sound, apparently Lon Chaney had a clause in his contract that he was never, ever going to do a voice work or any sound and for phantom of the opera in particular nobody was allowed to dub the phantom for him so what they did was they just kind of rewrote some of the dialogue so it sounded like somebody else was talking for the phantom and showed it only over the parts where he was in shadow that's um that's awkward that's yeah <laughs> now lon cheney senior uh did speak on film once there's like one sound film of him out there but yeah he was a silent guy and he knew i mean i think he knew how to work the silent film and how to really tweak the audience and and hold on to that mystery so it totally makes sense that he wouldn't want his voice to be heard because again it provides the mystery of of lon cheney there is a documentary about uh early universal I think Kenneth Branagh is the narrator on it, and there's a shot of the early actors of Universal, all the silent actors, and they're all looking at the camera and smiling, except for Lon Chaney. He's got his back to the camera, and as the camera's coming by him, he kind of turns, he sees his profile just for a second, and then he turns back around, totally manipulating the audience even then. And it's fascinating. Yeah. He's the Miles Davis of silent horror. (laughs) I've never heard him called that. I love it. I'm going to start using that. That's great. (laughs) wow (laughs) okay (laughs) for my money i think he's my favorite phantom as well i mean we talked about that in the classic five he's your favorite i mean he's so good he is so good and you know it's a silent film so it's a different kind of acting you know a little a little more over the top you know that sort of thing but once you accept that once you get into the mindset of i'm going to watch a silent film this one you kind of forget you're watching a silent film because you just get taken into the entire world of it it's just a beautiful film yeah because I love silent movies. And the thing is, they didn't have all this technology, so they had to play up what they had. So for me, it's better than the movies we have now. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you watch like Nosferatu, how did they pull that crap off? Oh, man. Nosferatu is so good. And they had like no special effects. So it's like, dude, it still looks scary. It still looks realistic. Come on, man. <laughs> That's <laughs> art. It, it, it really is. To me, silent films are like the ultimate low-budget movie these days. You know, they're, they're guerrilla filmmaking. They were just figuring out how to make these things. Yep. And because of that, their imagination is just huge. Yeah. And you can really get wrapped up and, and, and sucked into these things. Yeah, again, back to Phantom of the Opera. I mean, come on, man, the masquerade scene. That's like 
Wow, yeah. Yeah, that's like one of the most beautiful things ever put on film back in 1925. Right. No I mean, effects. <laughs> none whatsoever. And you've got all these different people involved in trying to make this thing happen. The, the coordination involved alone is fascinating and, and mind-blowing. And back to the costuming, the Red Death. So good. Exactly. Oh, that, man. That, it's that scene is just amazing. And that makes me sad because they took that out of the 43 version. They took it out of the 43 version in a couple of different ways because, well, you don't have the, the Red Death character, you know, the costume, that sort of thing. Yeah. But the film is in color. It's the entire thing's in color. And I mean, I don't know. I've seen clips of it rendered in black and white. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if the movie would have worked better for me if it was a black and white film with maybe a punch of color here and there. I don't know. I think that we would have lost the spectacle of the opera. You think so? Yeah, I think we would have. If it wasn't for... Okay, I'll, I'll meet you halfway. Because <laughs> if they have the above-ground scenes in the color, because I do, I think for the opera staging scenes, you really need the color. They geared it towards color. But if they did the underground stuff in black and white to really like show the contrast between the world Eric was living in and the rest of the world. Huh. Okay. But that only really would have worked if they'd done more with Eric. Yeah. He would need a little bit more there, I suppose. Yeah. Which I would have liked to have had more with Eric. I, absolutely. No, I, I, I have to disagree with you on this one. I think this version needed the color. I think it was for color. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously it was designed for color and they wanted to, if they're trying to compete with other musicals of the day, they, they've got to go full on color. I just, I'm a big fan of like going through YouTube and finding you know, clips, compilations, montages of old Universal or classic monster movies, the things that people do are just pretty awesome. And every one that I've seen that includes Phantom in with the rest of the monster movies, they render it black and white. And to me, it just feels cool to have this black and white Phantom hanging out with the Bride of Frankenstein and all these others. Uh, the Dark Universe sizzle reel that Universal just put out does include clips from Phantom, and they did render him black and white for it. Mm-hmm. And I dig it. But then they're only showing the Phantom of the Opera. I suppose the Opera House would feel a little more, I don't know, not as vibrant if it was yeah. black and white. I think you're right. Okay. All right. I'll give you that. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get one, at least one. And uh, no wrong answers on anything here on Monty <laughs> Radio, not just the Class A5. You know, overall, I do enjoy the film. Uh, I don't know if I could included though i mean do you consider it one of the classic universal monster movies or is it kind of its own thing it's its own thing it's kind of hard for me to mix it into things like dracula and such yeah i don't i don't see it at all i mean universal clearly at this point they consider it part of it because they include clips from the dark universe uh, sizzle reel but well okay i heard i heard that the only reason they include the 43 version Sorry, that's I'm in the phone room. That's okay. Uh, the only reason they include the 43 version is because the 25 version is in public domain and they can't really make money off it anymore. That's true. So it may just be Universal forcing this on us. Yeah, I could see that. Have you seen the oh – boy, we're way off track. But have you seen the Dark Universe uh, sizzle reel? No, I haven't. Are, are you interested at all in what they're doing with the, the mummy or anything like that? Kind of. Yeah. I, I don't know, because I, I saw it like Dracula Untold. It had Luke Evans in it, and he's really hot with fangs. So I was okay with that. Okay. <laughs> but 
Another reason why I like getting new voices on MKR. You get totally different perspectives. I, I would have never said that myself. So thank you, Dominique, for bringing that to the table. <laughs> but it's it kind of bugged me because it's like even if the movie maybe wasn't that good, they started to build the world with all this other stuff that was going on. And then they're just like, no, we're, we're not doing that anymore. We're doing this. And that, as, as a writer, that bugs me. Yeah, it, it feels like, and I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, I'm more aware of it, and, and I, I see it happening now, and Hollywood's not making movies for my age group and my demographic anymore, but I do seem to th- see the time between reboots or, or starting over becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah. You know, like the Spider-Man movies being an example, and then, of course, what's happening with Dracula Untold, because it was going to be part of it. I mean, it wasn't going to, and then it was, and then it wasn't, and then it was, and then it bombed. <laughs> and they said no, and they're starting over completely. But then they keep interviewing Luke Evans, who says, oh, yeah, I'll come back. Sure, no problem. It's like, I I don't know. I'm going to see The Mummy. I'm just going to see it. I, sure. I freaking I watched Dracula Untold in theaters, and I just walked into the theater being like, I'm going to hate myself when this is over. Oh, no. But I saw it anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm totally going to see The Mummy. But it's just like, come on, guys. I don't know. Why does everything have to have a shared universe? Well, that's Marvel's fault, isn't it? I know. No, it that's is Marvel made all that money. How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> See, the only one I'm looking forward to, the, the acceptable shared universe is the proposed uh, Roger Corman one. I'm down with that. You know, I haven't heard about that in forever. Neither have I, which makes me sad because I wanted like the Viking women and the sea serpent to be in the same world as the creature from the haunted sea. Man, I hadn't thought of man, that came out years ago. I think I even mentioned it here on the show at one point, but I don't remember when. I haven't heard there's like ten of them, right? Ten of the American independent pictures that Corman was involved with that we're gonna try to link together and it was things like Viking women and, and you know, the the monster movies and then some of these historical just a weird mix. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, that would have been okay. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't mind the shared universe when it's done right, you know, Marvel. You know, I'm a Marvel person. I know you're a DC person, though. So, what do you think of what they're doing with like the Batman movies and such? Okay. Uh oh. Did I open another door? <laughs> yeah, you didn't open another door, but because okay, I've been a comic book fan basically since I was 13, and this okay. whole DC versus Marvel thing—it's not a thing. Yes. It, it popped up with the movies because apparently everything has to be adversarial. But I've been reading Marvel since I started, and I've been reading DC since I started. I do have to say my personal predilections are more towards DC because DC and Marvel have two distinct writing styles and character styles. They always have. They always have. And there's nothing wrong with that. It is a personal taste issue. So making them adversarial just doesn't make sense in my head. Unless they're doing a four-issue miniseries written by Kurt Busiek, yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. (laughs) For me, it's an issue of what they're doing well right now. Because if you look at the overall scope of Marvel and DC, it's on a wheel, like in my head. Marvel can't do live action stuff to save their lives. Like 70s Doctor Strange and the the classic, classic original live action Spider-Man. I loved that stuff though, man. Come on, I loved that Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man growing up. Yeah, but you can't say it was good. <laughs> Whereas... At the time, Marvel, they did like some cartoons and stuff that were really good. And then you had, at the same time, you had the DC Wonder Woman with Linda Carter, which was amazing. (laughs) 
And the cartoons that DC was putting out was like Super Friends and kind of the wheel turned. And mm-hmm. right now we're having Marvel doing really good live action stuff, whereas their animation is actually kind of sucking. And DC, on the other hand, is doing really, really, really crappy live action stuff. Please, Wonder Woman, save us. But their animation is really, really super good. So it goes, it goes back and forth. The thing is with Marvel is that they have actually put the time and effort into creating that universe. So fair play to them. Because if you're going to put the money and you're going to put the time and you're going to put the talent into creating that, you deserve the success. DC is not willing to do that. They're trying to force it through and it's just absolutely not working. Hasn't that always been Warner Brothers issue though? I mean, I feel like they have so much that they can do. I mean, they have Batman, they have Superman, they have Wonder Woman, they have Young Justice, they have all these things. Mm-hmm. And they could have done so much with what they have. And, and I feel like now that they see what Marvel's doing, it's like, oh, hey, wait a minute, we've got these guys, let's make a movie now. Like, that's, I don't know. I agree. I think they're not putting the care and thought into it. But then didn't Marvel kind of stumble into this by accident too? So who knows? Well, yeah, with Disney. Because yeah. the thing is, with Marvel, in okay, this is, again, my opinion. The movies, they're throwing so much effort and time into the movies because Disney, the comics are actually starting to suffer. Marvel comics are not very good nowadays. No, there, there's there been a lot of talk about that online, too. A lot of people talking about why Marvel is failing. And was it Marvel itself that said there was too much diversity and all this? Other? I, I don't even know what that was about. Did you, did you follow that news? No. Yeah, I'd have... And I may even cut this because I thought I saw Marvel come out and say that the reason they're not their comics aren't selling is because of this and that. They blamed it on the fans, and it's just like, come on. Yeah. Anyway, I mean that that can't be true because DC is selling comics left and right, and they suck right now too. <laughs> Don't cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I read comics religiously from junior high school through a few years after high school and off and on I still find myself diving back in and you know reading my old stuff and checking out what's out there now and I've always felt that it's a disservice when the comics start following the movies when the tail starts wagging the dog in that regard oh my god but but you know it would be nice if the comic book side of things got a little bit more love yes because <laughs> you don't have the movies but you know people who see the movies don't necessarily go out and buy the comics and I it's a whole thing. So it's interesting that we've got these two different approaches, Marvel and then DC. And then here comes Universal. We're like, hey, wait a minute. We've got all these properties. We've been doing it since the 40s when Frankenstein met the Wolfman. Now we want a piece of this pie. Yeah. I'm going to see it too. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, I, I have hopes. Yeah. It's, it, it, we'll see. I, I don't know. I, f- I feel like I've been hurt too many times. <laughs> I, I really want it to be true i really want it to work and i think it can work in the right hands i just don't know if we have the right hands right now it's a good way to put it <laughs> anyway we, we we've kind of veered way off the dark universe sizzle reel that i keep talking about it's about a two minute long clip it's got original music from danny elfman which is great i mean i think whether or not you like the 2010 version of the wolfman they did one of the best parts of that movie was danny elfman's score so having him do the score for this two minute bit very cool and it's a montage of clips from various classic universal monster movies save bela lugosi from dracula because lugosi jr 
is a lawyer or was a lawyer. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff involved there. They do use clips from the Spanish Dracula, which I find interesting. But they include Phantom in the mix. There, there's Phantom, the Gill Man, uh, Doctor Pretorius is at the end. It's all these different characters that they reference. It makes me wonder if they plan on bringing them into their new shared universe if they're successful with the Mummy. So does the Phantom have a place in all that? I don't know. We'll see. I guess. I do. You think the Phantom could work as a contemporary story? You want to know one of the weirdest versions of Phantom of the Opera out there is actually okay. a Count Ducula comic book story called Phantom of the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> Count Ducula. Man, I haven't thought about Ducula in forever. Ducula's the man. Wow. But the thing is, because as stupid as that sounds, it actually brings the Phantom into a contemporary setting. Okay. So, yeah, it could work. <laughs> Even better if it has Count Ducula in it. <laughs> we could put Count Ducula into the shared universe. Is the world ready for a Ducula feature film? <laughs> I'm ready. I don't know if the rest of the world is, but I'm hey, ready. hey, you're a writer. Why don't you go ahead and write it, and then we'll start pitching it, and then we'll <laughs> see what we can do. <laughs> oh, well, I know they've tried to contemporize The Phantom before. In the 70s, they did Phantom of the Paradise, and that was a contemporary film at the time. So, I mean, I, I get it. I think... They've tried it. I, I don't know if it could work now unless they got rid of all the cell phones. Um, but isn't that the thing with all horror movies is you have to get rid of the cell phones first? Actually, okay, again, we're going back into the having things in the right hands because even then it could still work because ultimately the Phantom of the Opera is about obsession, but it's not only love obsession, it's music obsession. And yeah. there are ways to express that through social media, again, in a faceless way so that nobody sees you. So essentially – Social media is your mask instead of having like a physical mask. Oh, now I want to see that. <laughs> Somebody write that. <laughs> I want to see that. So you mentioned the music, you know, the obsession of the music. And that really is, I think, what we get more of in the 43 version of Phantom is as clunky as some of it might be handled. Eric is obsessed with music and they use music to try to lure him out and capture him. And I, and I do think some of the moments... In the third act where the, the guy in charge is like, music has been used to drive so many people apart or war or kill people or whatever. Let's use it to capture somebody. Let's use it for good. I thought, well, that, that's a nice little statement, I suppose, on music and art. And I liked that yeah. quite a bit. And I like the very end of the film. The, the final post-Phantom being buried, maybe alive, who knows. Mm -hmm. I like the very end of the film where Christine is in her dressing room after a performance and the two suitors come in again. I'm curious to see your take on this because earlier in the movie, she's having a conversation with the person in charge and he tells her, you have to choose. Do you want the quote unquote normal life or do you want to be an artist for yourself? Mm -hmm. And at the end, she makes that choice, at least for then. I mean, who knows what happens you know, the next day or whatever. But at that moment, she does make that choice. She does embrace her life as an artist right then. And I thought that was a neat way to end the film. Absolutely, man. Girl power. I don't need a man. I'm an artist, man. I got a career. That's right. Leaving the baritone and the cop to go have dinner together themselves instead. Exactly. Even though less than five minutes earlier, he said, well, I would never be seen in public having dinner with a baritone. <laughs> and I don't want to be seen in public with the police. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I did okay. like the way it ended. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Speaking of which, random aside, yeah. the cop guy... Uh -huh. Tell me Vincent Price would not have rocked that. Oh, man. That would have been great. 40s Vincent Price in particular. Oh. Right. Oh, that would have been great. Well, Vincent Price would have been good at anything, really. But, I mean, that, exactly. that would have been awesome. Yeah. 
and just to see him with that pencil thin mustache again he's he's really thin and just kind of like mm, proper and oh that would be perfect and that super affected voice yeah oh man that voice <laughs> i'm daydreaming about it now anyway. um, <laughs> lon cheney is the tenor and vincent price is the cop oh wow that would have been fun to see those two together right that would have been amazing Oh, wow. They never did. Did they ever work together? I don't know if they did. I don't think they did. Oh, another missed opportunity that has nothing to do with this film. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been awesome. Anyway, Phantom of the Opera. Thumbs up, thumbs down for you. Thumbs up. It's really hard to screw up a Phantom of the Opera story for me. Well, I mean, it's got some issues. I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but I think overall, Claude Rains, he's immensely watchable, even if they don't let him uncork enough in this film for our taste yeah he's still great and he's still fun to watch and he's an incredible actor i mean as monster kids we know him from invisible man the wolf man you know these monster or terror pictures as a lot of them called it because i didn't want to admit to being in horror movies he is an incredible actor just to watch in movies like this when he realizes his music's being stolen the look on his face i mean you feel terrible for the guy i don't know if i would have encouraged him to go kill somebody but you just feel terrible for him and that that is claude Rains's performance right there the strength of what he's bringing to the table well i love that scene in the beginning where the maestro calls him into the office and he's like okay we've got a problem and you can just see him like gradually fall he's like i can't do this anymore and i don't have a job and this is my life oh my god and it's just like it's a gut punch <laughs> he just dissolves right there in front of you yeah and and, and he knows he knows the gig is up yeah so performance-wise, watch the movie for Claude Rains, if nothing else. If nothing else. Uh, yeah, and, and to see the Phantom set in color. And I believe the Phantom set, unfortunately, now has been torn down, hasn't it? I believe so, yeah. I think stage 28 is no more. Which is too bad. It just stuck around for a long, long time. But I guess Universal needed room for a theme park or something. I don't know. Yeah, I heard it went to an attraction. I don't want to live in that world anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I want to live in a world where stage 23 still exists. Yes. Well, at least I can see it in this film, in full color. Yep. All right. Well, this has been fun for me, and I would love to have you back on the show in the future to talk about some more monster movies, some more uh, horror stuff, maybe some Hammer stuff, some Peter Cushing, because I can't talk about Peter Cushing enough. Absolutely. If people want to follow along with what Dominique's up to, check out her website at the University of the Bazaar, which is the universityofthebazaar.wordpress.com, where she says she thinks too much about dead people and Batman, so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a calling. Yeah, well, you know. Oh, I like this. Okay. Obsessed with Batman, Dead People, and The King in Yellow. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) The King in Yellow doesn't get enough attention, I feel like, so that's awesome. Absolutely not. Yeah. Awesome. So we'll make sure there's a link to that. And again, if you've got anything coming up publishing-wise, writing-wise, please let us know. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Even if it's an episode that you're not on, I'd love to talk about it because more people need to read your stuff. Oh, thank you. Really, really enjoyed the story that you had. It was in the Women in Horror, right? The, yes. The Hammer-influenced story that you wrote? That's what we need. We need a Hammer-shared universe. Because oh, that's actually man. basically what I did in that story. Exactly, right? I mean, you, you kind of sort of have – well, not really. You just have the Dracula franchise. Not even the Frankenstein films are technically all connected. That's and they kind of can't be, unfortunately. I, I try real hard in my head to make them fit. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to. The dates don't add up. Yeah. But man, a shared universe. So that would be weird, though, because you'd have Van Helsing and Dr. Frankenstein both looking like Peter Cushing. But then we could go all soap opera-y and they'd be like twin brothers or something. <laughs> have Dr. Frankenstein have the mustache? Yeah, exactly. He's the evil one. <laughs> or like an eye patch or something. Oh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's what I want now. Okay, listeners, <laughs> that's what we need now. The, the shared hammer universe. Somebody get on that. Yep. We can have Captain Kronos in his golden carriage and everything. See, when we were doing 1951 Downplace, that's one of the things we joked about was having like the Hammer A team where it was Captain Kronos in his golden carriage and Quatermass was part of the team and uh, Fowler Sandor from one of the Dracula films was there. And, you know, they were all going around just fighting all these bad guys, all the supernatural evil. Because the original Kronos, he was a time traveler type. So why not? Let's make it work. Yep. There you go. And someday, someday I want to take the A-Team TV show theme song and just edit clips of Hammer Films over it. <laughs> you know, make my own little Hammer Films A-Team video. One of these days. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> okay. Dominique, thanks for being part of the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. We'll have you on the show again in the future. Thanks a lot. Take care. Over at Dominique's website at theuniversityofthebazaar.wordpress.com, she does have her response to The Mummy. She went to see it, and spoiler, she kind of liked it. She's going to tell you why in this article, or you can meet her at Rose City Comic Con coming up the first weekend of September. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that here shortly. Dominique's fiction has appeared in the women in horror annual last year she's got a really cool hammer films influence short story in that of course i'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well as well as to her work over at non-binary review now i have recorded with her since she did go to the monster kid radio crash when we went to go see the original war of the worlds and like i said she's going to be on the panel at rose city comic-con and i'm going to record that as well dominique thanks for being part of the show this week Jack here, and I want to tell you about Phantom of the Paradise. It's a movie, man, and it's out of sight. It's about a cat who sells his soul for rock and roll. It's a horror story. It's a love story. It's a comedy, all rolled into one phantasmagorical flake. So take it from the Wolfman. Get down with the Phantom of the Paradise. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. <laughs> Journey into double terror with the late night double feature with X, the fiend from beyond space, and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain and I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing 
incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about Rose City Comic Con. I like going to Rose City Comic Con. Even if they don't have monster content, or at least not on the schedule, I'm still able to find something there to talk about here on Monster Kid Radio. I try to go with my recorder every single time. Tom Doffel and I like to walk the floor and meet new artists. I've had guests on the show that I've met first at Rose City Comic Con. This is the first year that I get to moderate a panel at this convention. Now, Rose City Comic Con can be found at rosecitycomiccon.com. It's happening September 8th, 9th, and 10th. They've just expanded into three days because they've got so much stuff, so much goodness packed in there. We're now Yankovic's going to be there. Peter Capaldi's going to be there. Carl Urban's going to be there. And Monster Kid Radio is going to be there because on Saturday, 4.30, Room 8, Universal Unite with Monster Kid Radio. I'm going to get up there and moderate a panel with Dominique, as well as Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland and Jeff Dean, the semi-regular co-host of the Kaiju Cast. We're going to talk about our thoughts on Universal's Dark Universe, the Mummy movie with Tom Cruise, what they've got coming up. Specifically, though, we're going to talk about how we would do it as modern-day monster kids. What do we want to see come out of the Dark Universe? So if you're there, I would love to meet you. I'll have my recorder with me. Like I said, I'll be recording the panel. I still will try to walk the floor and meet up with people. I know Sean Hode's going to be there. He's always fun to talk to on the Comic-Con floor, so I'll record with him if possible. One of these days, I need to get him on the show proper. I'm just looking forward to meeting as many people as possible. I'll be wearing the Monster Kid Radio t-shirt. I'll have a portable recorder on hand. Tom Doffel will be there for part of the day so you can meet him. Meet the other panelists and check this out. We've got prizes that we're going to be giving out at the panel as well. Movies donated by Modern Day Monster Kids, Joshua Kennedy and Christopher R. Mim, as well as books donated by Modern Day Monster Kids, Stephen D. Sullivan. And anything else I can scrounge up between now and then. Make sure you come to the panel for your chance to win a prize. And here is Gab about the Dark Universe. <laughs> I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com 
or visit sdsullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Coming from gooey films, an adventure like no other. From the mind of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Watson! The year is 1896, and Sherlock Holmes faces his most peculiar case yet. The mystery of the Six Napoleons. Thank you. Come, Watson. The game is afoot. Joshua Kennedy as the master detective. A new and exciting Sherlock Holmes. I dare call nothing trivial, Watson. Nothing. You'll remember how the dreadful case of the Abernethy family was first brought to my attention by the depth which, which the, the parsley, parsley had sunk into the butter on a hot day. Yes, yes. We all know what you did. Bessie Nellis. Dr. Watson's most beautiful portrayer. It is clear... That the possession of this trifling bust was worth more in the eyes of our strange criminal than that of a human life. Jonathan Danziger as Inspector Lestrade. Amy Ziliacs as Mrs. Hudson. Also starring a cavalcade of great talent. Jake Williams. Tracy Thomas. George Chapper. Michael Rosenfeld. Will McKinley. Mark Holmes. Yes, it's quite humorous if I do say so myself. Well, there it is. The Return of Sherlock Holmes. See it in Gooey School. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. This is the end of the show where I tell you everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Like I said at the top of the show, we have a Facebook page. We also have a Facebook group, so you can look that up and join the group. I'm pretty quick about making sure you get added if you put in a request to join the group. And there is a poll going over there right now. Check that out. Would love to have you involved in the conversations with other Monster Kid Radio listeners. We have links to this on our website over at monsterkidradio.net. Here you can also find our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or if you want to call and leave a voicemail, you can do that at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Like I said earlier, everything that we talked with Dominique about will be here as well. Links to all of her material. We also have a link to our T Public store, tpublic.com slash user slash Monster Kid Radio. Pick up some Monster Kid Radio t-shirts to show your support of the show. Coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio, Stephen D. Sullivan is back and we are finally going to announce the winners of the 2016 Monster Rally Retro Awards. This is our way of recognizing the best actor, actress, movie, director, and monster of genre cinema of, well, yesteryear, just like what we do here on the show. Except this time around, we're going to recognize the best in 1933, 43, and 53. We're going to review the ballot and then announce the winners on next week's show. And then after that, 
We're going to kick off a theme month here at Monster Kid Radio, Sword and Sandal and Monsters. It's Sword and Sandal September. We're going to talk about peplum films that have monster content. Dominique's actually going to be in one of those episodes, as will Chris McMillan and the returning Rod Barnett from the Nashi cast. So stay tuned for that. I'll make sure there are any announcements about upcoming episodes on our website and on our Facebook page. And one more thing, I got a comment from Jeff Pullier online about last week's episode. Last week, we had George McGowan on to talk about The Blob and then a recording with Chris Yeworth from Monster Bash. We even had that really cool song, One Night in 57, all about The Blob. There was a small glitch in the audio. At one point in the conversation, George and I are having a good old time. And then for some reason or other, an artifact turned up in the audio and you get to hear the blob trailer while we're talking and the audio just sounds terrible. It lasts for just about a minute and a half, two minutes. At some point, I'm going to go back and remaster that and try to pull that out and fix it and put it back out into the feed. But it's still a good episode. I mean, it's still, it's still good. Just know that there's a, it's, the blob's fault. I, I couldn't help it. Anyway, uh, hopefully there aren't any glitches in this week's episode. I'm going to talk to everybody next week. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Speakeasy. That belongs to the band Retroactive Gamma Rays. It's off their album Activate. They are a band based here in Oregon. And remember, on August 26th, they are doing their only live show of the summer at the Naughty Mermaid on Northwest 13th and Highway 101. It's free. It starts at 9 p.m. Swing by and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>